Our scripture reading for today comes from Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened, to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Father, this past week has been challenging for some. And we ask God that as we look at your word that you would speak to us. I don't know how you're going to minister to us this morning through it, but we do ask for you to do that, and we do believe that that will happen. I pray, God, that you would be who we look to. Over these past couple of weeks with Pastor Steve talking about who to put our trust in and that you're king, and it seems like that's been an ongoing theme in the Gospel of Mark, and so we again turn to your word, and we do see you as king of the natural as well as the supernatural, and so we come before you, God, seeking your comfort, your peace, and the desire to fulfill your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Before uh, jumping into the passage this morning, I want us to look back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15 where Jesus declared, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then there's this invitation for us to decide on what we are going to do with that declaration. It says, repent and believe in the gospel. And so with that as a backdrop, whether you agree with what happened this past week in our elections or not, realizing that Jesus is king, realizing that we do follow a God that is greater than any type of leadership that we can have for our country. So last week, we saw Jesus as Lord of the natural. We saw Jesus as Lord of the supernatural. He calmed the great windstorm, which was a natural 
occurrence, and he exercised authority over demons. And in the Gospel of Mark, we've read of amazing things that Jesus has said, amazing, miraculous things that he has done, and we'd expect he'd attract a huge crowd of people, which he did. But we'd also probably expect that many within the crowd would become followers of Jesus, but that is not so. And it's not all that different from what is happening today. Many people who are attracted to what Jesus taught, what Jesus did, or they would be if they actually knew what he taught and what they did. But in taking that next step of faith to follow Jesus, that's another matter, even for churchgoers. With folks who go to church, there's an even smaller who actually follow what he taught or what he said. And with the people who have seen God work, how many of them are like the Gerasenes who told Jesus to depart from their region in verse 17? Or how many people are like those in verse 40 who laughed at Jesus? Or how many people take offense at Jesus? Chapter 6, verse 3, we'll see that the next time we look at the scripture. Even his own family thinks he's out of his mind. And in chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus said, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. See, Jesus wasn't very well received when he walked this earth, and he's not all that well received today. He is told to depart. He is laughed at, taken offense at. It's the parable of the soils happening right in front of our eyes, isn't it? The seed is sown, and only the seed that lands in good soil has lasting benefit. So let's look at our text this morning. We're actually going to be going all the way through to verse 43, because we're going to be starting our Advent series next week. So I wanted to wrap up this chapter before we did that. So the first three verses, starting in 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. We read that Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue, so this was a man of prominence. He was known in this town, and he fell at the feet of Jesus. And so we see that the love that a parent has for their child strips them of any pride, of any pretense, of any judgment from this ruler of the synagogue. His daughter is dying, so his title, his place in society, all of that stuff just doesn't matter right now. He doesn't send someone in his place to go talk to Jesus. He himself falls at Jesus' feet and believes that she can be made well by Jesus laying hands on her. He must have heard something about Jesus. He must have heard of the healing works of Jesus and is certain that Jesus can heal his daughter. Verse 24, and he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Mark records for us that Jairus' daughter was 12 years old in verse 42. 12 is a very significant number in the Jewish culture. For a 12-year-old girl, that is when she would have her bat mitzvah. And so it was believed that this Jewish girl at this age would become a woman and be responsible for her own actions before God. And there was a woman who for 12 years was responsible for herself, but we see that this condition that she had ruined her life. Verse 26, and 
who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. This condition she had ruined her, ruined her financially, ruined her life socially. She was deemed ceremonially unclean, and anyone who made contact with her would also be deemed ceremonially unclean. So whoever was considered ceremonially unclean had to go through this cleansing ritual in order to live within community without making others unclean. And so you can imagine this lady's isolation, just ostracized from society. This hemorrhaging woman who for the last 12 years could not go through a cleansing ritual and was not accepted into the community. Social outcast who was alienated from her society. And Jesus is great at reaching alienated people. He's great at restoring relationships that were once broken. And you look at the people he has restored in the community. Levi, the tax collector. The former demon possessed by a legion of demons in last week's sermon. This hemorrhaging woman, Jairus' daughter. All of these people considered ceremonially unclean, but they all found themselves restored in Jesus. The ironic thing is that we find that those who were most religious were furthest from Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes who thought they were closest to God were actually furthest from God. And those who thought they were farthest from God were actually closest to God. You know, it's something that I think I personally need to constantly revisit because I'm a Pharisee and I'm a scribe and I don't mean that in the derogatory way. I just mean that this is what I do for work. And I also wonder about those who claim to be followers of Jesus, followers of God, and where their heart is moving forward with our society. For those of us who are more like the Pharisees and scribes, we need to regularly have a sit-down with Jesus and ask him how we're doing. Are we fooling ourselves thinking we're close to him when we're actually really far from him? Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who's in our lives? Who's in our church? Because it makes no sense for a hospital to exist if there aren't sick people who need to get well. Why does our church exist. It makes no sense for us to exist if there aren't sinners who are in need to receive righteousness. Our primary existence is not to be a social club, a book club, and a glee club. And yet this is what many churches turn into. You know, you come around once a week for some fellowship time to study the Bible and sing some songs. And those are components to a church, but those are not the primary reason for our existence. Jesus came and he touched untouchables. Jairus' daughter and this woman with this blood condition were considered ceremonially unclean. The dead were considered ceremonially unclean. And so here we have these two women who if anyone made contact with them would also be considered ceremonially unclean. And Jesus made contact with them both. He touches the untouchable. He did that with all of us. 
We're all sinners, but by his touch, his contact makes us righteous. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jairus recognized Jesus' power to heal. The woman recognized Jesus' power to heal. Verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. So it's kind of an interesting thing happening here. There's this mix of faith and superstition that's happening here. And so some of you may be asking, what's the difference between faith and superstition. Isn't it the same thing? And I think a lot of folks who don't believe in God would believe that it's the same thing. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 tells us, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So let's look at that phrase here. The assurance of things hoped for. Now put yourself in a child's perspective, because we all once were. A child has faith in their caregiver to provide nourishment, care, love, shelter. So whether that is a parent, a guardian, a healthcare worker, a teacher, whatever role you find yourself in, that faith, that assurance of things hoped for, grows or it shrinks based on what has happened over time. And so that child takes note of what has happened and from the many experience, they can ascertain whether that caregiver is true to who he or she claims to be, if he or she becomes reliable, that faith strengthens. And if not, that faith weakens. And so we have the same thing with God. We have experiences that acquaint us with God. And looking at the scriptures, we can grow in our faith because we have thousands of years of God's character given to us that carries into the present and into the future. And for those of us who have faith in God, in his word, we recognize this reliability and this assurance and trust in God grows from it. Superstition, on the other hand, does not have that credibility. It does not have that substance. It is dependent on chance. So there is no dependence on character and that character's faithfulness to an established set of principles. So for example, let's look at numerology. In our U.S. American culture, the number 13 has bad luck associated with it. And so you'll go into some buildings and they'll skip the number 13. You know, I was an EMT when I was in L.A. That's one way that I was trying to work my way through college. I worked all over L.A. and I had to take inmates to LA's General Hospital. And so some of them are convicted, some of them are awaiting trial. Guess where their hospital floor was? Floor 13. And so all the other elevators, they would skip that floor. You'd notice that it would be 12 to 14, but then they had their own special elevator shaft. And on that one, it just went from first floor to 13. That's the only one it stopped at. And then you'd go in and then the law enforcement would have to check in all their firearms and stuff like that, walk through this building, they'd buzz you through, and you'd go through like two different chambers and then go through and like it was a very edifying time in my life. So, but that's how it happens. And so in Asian cultures, what's the bad number there? Four. Why is four? Because it sounds like death. 
So instead of skipping 13, you go to Hong Kong and you look at the things they skip four. Really, it's not a skip because your fourth floor is really just, you know, fifth floor. So if you're on the fifth floor, you're really on the fourth floor. So anyway. <laughs> it's not like they're going to skip a whole floor and just like leave it blank, right? So they want to make their money. So that's a difference from superstition and faith. Your child has faith in you because you've built that credibility of taking care of them over time. It's not guaranteed. It's a faith on their part that you're going to feed them. It's faith on their part that you're going to provide shelter for them. It's faith on their part, just as we have faith in God to provide for us, to care for us, to provide shelter, all those different things. We have faith. It is not a superstition. It's not like a knock on wood. There's no credibility there. It's by chance. So this woman has heard of the stories of Jesus, how he's healed so many people. She believed he could heal her. That's faith. And the touching of the garment to be made well, though, the uh, superstition. Where did that idea come from? What's supporting that idea? Are those Old Testament scriptures there to support that idea? That nothing's written about that. So here we see this mix of faith and superstition. And I don't fault this lady for doing this. I mean, you might as well try. She tried everything else, right? You might as well do it. It's free. And so Jesus didn't condemn her for her superstition and said that her faith made her well, even though it's mixed and it's not pure. Verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Superstition in touching Jesus' garment for healing didn't stop her faith. Didn't stop her faith to make her well. She had faith that the healer, that he was good and that he wouldn't judge her for doing something out of superstition. Her healing was more than physical. He healed her socially. He healed her spiritually. She could go through the ritual cleansing now and re-enter a house of worship, re-enter community without the fear of others just not wanting to be ceremonially unclean and not wanting to be around her. And so there were people who thought Jesus to be out of his mind, to be demon-possessed. People told Jesus to depart. People laughed at Jesus, but not this lady. She came in faith and superstition, but it was her faith that made her well, which is why Jesus pointed this out to her. He looked for her, and she told Jesus her story. And Jesus then let her know that it was her faith that healed her. It wasn't her superstition. It wasn't the touching of his garment that healed her. And he wanted to point that out to her, to make sure she knew that. It's not your superstition. It's your faith. See, it's not like Jesus' clothes, they were magical or something. There were a lot of people in the crowd, and many people were touching Jesus' garments. Many people were touching him. Many probably needed some type of healing that even touched him. But there was a difference in that it wasn't the garment that healed her. It was her faith. And perhaps this is someone listening to this message and that you've just tried everything. How about faith? 
And even if you're not entirely clear, whether it's superstition on your part or it's even faith on your part, Jesus can see past all that static that is developed between this faith and superstition and identify faith in you. Faith the size of a mustard seed is enough. And you look at verse 34, this is really interesting. Jesus called her daughter. This is interesting because nowhere else in the entire Bible does Jesus address someone as daughter. How come she's addressed with this term of endearment? I think this is why. Because Jairus is right there with him, and he has a daughter that is dying. And so he's using this term of endearment, and perhaps Jesus was connecting this healing of one daughter who was suffering from 12 years of this medical condition to the healing of Jairus's daughter who's 12 years old and is dying. And pointing out, it's possible. I can do this. And so Jairus, as a ruler of the synagogue in Capernaum, was probably at the synagogue when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. He was probably there. Jairus was probably in the synagogue when Jesus taught there in Capernaum with great authority and caused that huge stir and commotion. So it wouldn't be surprising for Jairus to seek out Jesus for his daughter. There's a likelihood that Jairus was like the other religious leaders in terms of his attitude toward Jesus. I think that he was like the rest of the religious establishment and didn't readily accept Jesus. But you see, things have changed dramatically when his daughter became deathly ill. This is what crisis tends to do. Crisis tends to bring us to God. Where will we go when we feel this uneasiness, when we feel crisis, when we feel uncomfortable? See, Jesus desires to be our Savior. He desires to be our friend. And our crisis is not always resolved. But it doesn't change that Jesus wants to be our Savior and he wants to be our friend. But some people don't want a relationship with God unless he does resolve their crisis. Their relationship is conditional. But here's the thing. Healthy relationships don't work like this. A friendship with conditions just doesn't last very long, does it? His love for you is unconditional. Now, back to our story. Jesus went with Jairus to see his daughter. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, I'd imagine that Jairus was pretty distraught. He was really upset that Jesus didn't hurry up. Why are you doing this stuff? I came to you at the boat, like, why don't you just hop out of the boat and run with me? You'll never read this about Jesus, that he's in a hurry. Like, you'll never read that. He's never late to anything, but he's never in a hurry. He's never, like, running. You never see Jesus running, right? So for all you runners, just pointing that out. <laughs> he stops and he healed this woman with a blood problem and he's like looking for this woman oh woman where art thou that touched me and then he's like tell me your story 
And so she's probably telling her the whole story, and I can just imagine Jairus here looking like he has to go to the bathroom. Like, he's just like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. And then she was healed, and then he received news that his daughter died. Imagine him, so frustrated, so angry at this whole series of events. I mean, he was already anxious about this whole thing, and he did have faith. He had faith to seek Jesus when his daughter was sick, but yet, where does his faith get him? He's like, man, faith saved her, but what about mine? What about mine? My daughter's dead. What happened to his faith when he heard that she died? That's something for us to consider, right? Like We have faith now, but then something happens. Do we still hold on to that faith? Or would it be the type of faith that only exists when Jesus does what we want him to do? Then I'll have faith in you. Or is he truly Savior? Is he truly friend? That when our faith is challenged a little bit, that we continue to move on, having faith in him. The question asked in verse 35 by those from the ruler's houses is, just kind of shallow, isn't it? Is that all they wanted from Jesus? You heal the girl and then just be done with him. So since your daughter's dead, like, let's just move on. Like, leave the teacher alone. And that is not what Jesus wanted. That's not what he wants from us. Do we look at Jesus like this, like a genie who just kind of answers our wishes? Do what we want him to do for us and then move on with our lives until the next time we kind of need him. And then we approach him again. See, that's not friendship. That's not a healthy relationship. We look to God in our tough situations, in our crisis, because of faith. Because of a track record. Because of just like the faith that your child has with you or you have in somebody that has cared for you. We believe he has the power to make right bad circumstances. And so do we have this mindset that we just want to use God for favors. And that's all we really want from him. We just kind of want him to answer things for us and make things kind of comfy for us, and then that's it. This is God we're talking about, and it pleases him to deliver us from crisis. But what God really desires, what he really desires is not the deliverance from crisis. What he really desires is communion with you and me. That's what he wants. For those of you who are parents... Is your desire mostly just to like do favors for your children? They ask for something and then you provide it? How would you feel if your friend or your spouse, your child, your parent, all they wanted from you were gifts for you to kind of abide by their bidding? But they don't want anything to do with you. They just want your stuff. They just want what you are able to provide, what your abilities are able to provide. They don't want to hang out. They don't want to share lives with each other. They don't want to cry with you. They don't want to laugh with you. They don't want to support or encourage you. They just want you to give them some money and then leave them alone. That's a horrible relationship. None of us would stand for that if we have good boundaries. Some of you guys need to work on this stuff, I, I know. But that's not a healthy relationship. And yet we look at God like this. Like, do this thing, or I'm not going to believe in you. 
Verse 36, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of God, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. So we have the question from Jairus' friends in verse 35, and then we have this question from Jesus in verse 39. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This is kind of an odd question to ask people who just witnessed the death of a 12-year-old girl. Because it's really obvious why there's commotion, weeping, and wailing. And here's how they responded to Jesus, verse 40. And they laughed at him. You know, I don't think Jairus was laughing. Jesus told him in verse 36, do not fear, only believe. And I think he held on to what Jesus told him. It took faith to go to Jesus as a ruler of the synagogue. It took humility. And now that Jairus heard that his daughter was dead, will that faith get stronger or will that faith get weaker? He was just there to see this woman healed of her medical condition. Is that going to strengthen the faith or weaken the faith? And Jesus told them, only believe. The phrase only believe is in the present continuous tense. So in other words, keep believing. Keep believing. Belief in Jesus is not just a one-time thing. We need to keep believing. Jairus went to Jesus out of faith. Things got worse. What's going to happen to his faith? And he says, keep believing. So the same thing goes for us. There was something that drew us to have faith in Jesus, to believe in him. And when we face crisis, will we keep believing? Is our belief in Jesus real or is our faith conditional on granting wishes. And Jairus' friends just saw Jesus as a teacher who could do miracles, and when what they wanted was no longer possible, they tell Jairus, hey, forget about it. That's it. We don't need this anymore. But Jesus wants communion with us. To keep believing, even when circumstances in our life, they get worse. Verse 40, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Now there's that phrase, Talitha kum, that actually sticks out at me. It's an Aramaic phrase. It was the language of Jesus' day. This is what Jesus spoke. And the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek, but Aramaic is the common tongue during Jesus' day. And so Mark does this in the gospel where he'll interject some Aramaic into his Greek writings. There's several occasions on this. I can give you the verses if you want, but you can also do what I did and Google it. When he does this, it kind of reminds me of when someone who speaks another language will interject their language when speaking English. I love when this happens. It's just so hilarious to me. The relatives on my mom's side, they do this all the time. They'll mix Chinese or Spanish into their English. We're Chinese Mexicans on my mom's side. So we'll be getting tacos and they'll ask for their names from the taco stand or whatever. And so they'll pronounce their names in Spanish even though they're speaking English the whole time. Right, and then all of a sudden it's like Alfonso, right? It's not Alfonso, right? So it's the most bizarre thing. Or my uncle George is George most of the time, but taco truck, Jorge, right? That's just a, so 
And I get into it too, because you know, my name's Albert, and I'm like, Alberto! Like, you know, so, you know, then we'll get our food, and we're speaking English, but as soon as we get to our food, we talk about it with flair, right? Carne asada, like, you know, it's like, you, you roll your R's, tacos, and carnitas, and you're just, it's just our mother tongue being interjected into other languages, right? It's just like exciting tacos, you know? And so, and so here we have Jesus' very words in Aramaic, which is a really cool thing because those are words that he actually said. Like he said them. Like other things are like interpretations or translations, but he said those two words. He said them. It's not an interpretation. It's not a translation. These are the very words he says, which gives us a sense of intimacy with Jesus to know the very words from the very language he spoke to this little girl. And I think that's so cool. Now, some people believe like this phrase has some power to it, and so they'll say it, right? And I think it's funny, too, because it'd be like somebody like calling my cousin Alfonso, Alfonso, and not Alfonso, that they think like, oh, it's the word, it's the actual phrase, that Aramaic word that has power. And you know, It's not. It's not like that at all. This is a phrase a mom would use to wake up her child every morning to get ready for school. It's not some mystical, magical phrase to where, like, I can come here, Talita kum, like, rise. <laughs> this is simply a picture of Jesus' tenderness in waking up a 12 year old girl. It's equivalent to us saying, hey, honey, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. See, there's a lot that we don't know about Jesus. There's so much we don't know about Jesus, like, you know, how tall he was, how much he weighed what he looked like. And there's quite a bit that we don't know about him. But we do know that he said these very words. These very common words that a mother would say to her child. And we see how sweet and tender he was in how he did it. That he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitakum. Do you sense Jesus' tenderness towards you, his sweetness towards you, even when things are not going well for you? when things aren't going your way, that he's holding you by the hand. Get up. Get up. It's okay. Verse 42, And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Her mom and dad saw her alive again. Jesus didn't say anything special. He just said whatever her mom probably said to her every morning. And he didn't physically do anything special. I mean, he held her hand. And that holding her hand actually made him ceremonially unclean because touching a dead person did that to you. And so every Jew knew this. And here Jesus was in the house of the ruler of the synagogue who already saw Jesus touch the hemorrhaging lady, who already saw him touch his dead daughter. Those things made him ceremonially unclean. But all of that ceremonially uncleanness didn't matter to him right now. It didn't matter to the ruler of the synagogue who would kind of enforce these rules. He wanted his daughter back. And a miracle happened because of belief. The whole sequence of events, you know, this is quite uneventful, really, isn't it? There's only a few people in there. There are no, like, dramatic lights. There's no theme music. There's nothing, right? It's just like Jesus with a couple people going in there, taking this girl by the hand, saying, hey, little girl, wake up. And immediately she got up and she began walking. 
Last verse, and he strictly charged them not that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So she got up, began walking, and was told to give her something to eat, saying, eating is a good sign that someone's well. Who knows how long this girl has been sick and dying. And, and so these are all really good signs of life that she's fully recovered, that she can get up, that she can walk, and that she can eat. Right? When you're in the hospital and someone's sick, if they do these three things, those are a really good sign that they're getting healthy. And so this is a sign of the future that we have in Jesus Christ. See, our sleep is ordinary. We're all going to experience. It's something that will happen to all of us if Jesus doesn't come back first. We will all experience that death, that sting of death. And for those who place their faith in Jesus we will be met with tenderness and sweetness and told to wake up, get up, walk, commune with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask God that you would show us where our faith is at. Some of our faith has been shaken over the events of the week. And so God... May that be strengthened. May we believe. We ask, Lord, that you would have us to keep our eyes on you, knowing that you are sovereign, knowing that you are king. In Jesus' name, amen.